Hello, everyone, and welcome. Oh, my goodness, Claudia Fidel. She is amazing. This person who I came to know right as I uh, entered into the position that I'm in here at the Center for Independent Living. She was working at the University of Florida's Office of Disability and Health Program. And, oh, man, they do so much. You're going to hear about it in this interview. This program is phenomenal. Well, Claudia comes to talk to us about her life before coming to the Office of Disability and Health Program. And she talks, we, we get into it because her experiences have to do with helping people who are homeless. And of course, uh, the amount of people who have a disability and that are homeless is quite high. And the you know insights that Claudia shares about working with homeless people is a must listen to, especially if those that are listening don't have a lot of experiences with our homeless populations that are around us. Huge, very important, illuminating. She also talks about the experiences that she had in working with a family that had young children with disabilities and her experiences there and the values that she learned in working with this family. And of course, her experiences uh, with the University of Florida's Office of Disability and Health Program. This program is amazing. They produced a data report on the state of Florida that really outlined the prevalence of disability and then went on to show that all these disparities that exist in health outcomes, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, cancer, respiratory disease, depression, education, employment. This report is huge. It, it still lives on to being a very important resource for uh, so many different reasons. This program, while she was there, and she was a major, major influencer on the productivity of the program, which involved implementing evidence-based physical activity programs in schools, making diabetes chronic disease management programs accessible for people with disabilities. So tailoring the information and lessons and skills and resources that are related to diabetes management, which diabetes is two times more prevalent in populations of people with disabilities, making and tailoring that information so it's accessible for people with disabilities. We got to uh, work with her on uh, work that was related to emergency management and disaster preparedness for people with disabilities. The program that she was in, she was uh, helping to you know, create train the trainer trainings for healthcare providers and pre-health professionals on how to improve their health literacy skills and cultural competencies when working with people with disabilities. This area is so important and continues to be very important. She also was a master at being able to communicate and disseminate health-related information the research and science that's related to it, to various audiences. And I think all of us right now are getting a very big lesson in the importance of communicating research and science in a way that the audience can understand and act on. And she is master level at being able to do that. And so we get into it there. She talks about some of the important lessons that she's learned through working with all the different experiences that she had regarding disability. Claudia is so phenomenal. Her work that she has done is sustaining itself. And I say this because whether it's in science and research, whether it's in serving people, we always want our programs and our resources with us. So uh, one of the biggest issues is, is can we create a program and service that will outlive its funding? 
that will can continue on uh, once you know the the people that are there uh, who started it aren't around anymore. And I'm not sure anyone's cracked the code on sustainability, but the people that have come the closest to it is Claudia and her colleagues at the Office of Disability and Health Programs. And so they have a lot of lessons regarding sustainability. For me, that's the undercurrent of, of our conversation here. Claudia is just phenomenal. She's amazing. She's engaging and very captivating to talk to. She's one of those people that has helped to bridge research and science with the world of service and serving other people. This is huge. This is a very important thing that we need more of in order to really do the best we can. We need research. We need science. We need the best applications, instruments to measure things and analyze things. Huge. And then we also need application where the tire hits the road. You know, being put in, able to put things in practice and make people's lives better. To marry these two together is the recipe for closing the gap that exists in the inequities that are experienced by people with disabilities. And Claudia is a champion and has a lot to teach us on exactly how to do this. Enjoy the conversation. Hey, hey, everybody, and I'm so excited for this episode of The Independent Life. I am here with Claudia, and we go back a long way. Uh, when I first came to the center here, Claudia, uh, we got connected as you were working with the Office of Disability and Health program at the University of Florida, and oh man, we had a great ride uh, together through that collaboration. But I got to tell you, I didn't know, and still am interested to know more about your life before uh, coming on to the disability health program. And we'll get into what you did uh, with that program uh, in a little bit here. But, you know, let me know, like, what, what was up until that point, some of the experiences that you had regarding disability before I really got to know you through our collaborations? Yeah, you know, um, I worked closely when I was an undergrad. I, I went to the University of Florida for undergrad and for my master's program, so I've been here forever. And I, I used to work at, they, it's not here anymore, but it was the Gainesville Catholic Worker House. It was a house for homeless individuals downtown. Uh-huh. And we used to go and feed breakfast to um, individuals at the labor pools. At several labor pools, we would bring um, nutritional breakfasts and just serve them awesome. before they went off to their um, long day of work. And so, you know, you meet a lot of different people when you do that kind of work. Oh, yeah. And, you know, we, we just... We really just got to to meet and and become I would almost say friends with. I mean, I knew a lot of the guys, sure. and it was it was really great. It was we had to get up at three in the morning, though, <laughs> <laughs> wow. to get there in time. <laughs> but it was it was a, it was a really great experience. And then I also, you know, while I was getting uh, my schooling, I I babysat for a family, um, and one of their children had you know disabilities you know, that was a great experience as well. I mean, I was able to learn. I mean, you have to have patience regardless when you're working with kids, but it was like another level of patience um, with him. Ah. Yeah. Homeschooling him and helping his mom homeschool him for many, many years. Okay. So that was kind of my two, um, my two big experiences sort of before, before coming to the DHP that really helped shape you know, just my outlook on disability and, and what I wanted to bring to, 
to the program and my interest in kids has always been there. Um, but, you know, some of that, some of those things that we worked with in the later years, I think stemmed from that a little bit. So talk to me about the experiences you had in, in working with uh, the homeless population and perhaps what you would want people to know that probably don't have a lot of experience in uh, interacting with people that are homeless regarding disability. So homelessness and disability. What were some of the things that you gleaned from those experiences? I mean, I think, you know, I think any one of us are two or three catastrophes away from homelessness. You know, it's shocking when you think about how close a lot of people are to it. We're all on the Um, edge. Yeah. Everybody is. I mean, I've talked to people there that um, became homeless from medical debt. Yep. I've, you know, uh, veterans that couldn't hold down a a steady job and weren't able to then pay bills Mm -hmm. and pay their rent. And then, you know, you live in your car and then you live on the street. And so I've always had um, a soft spot for people who don't have a place, you know? Um, And so, you know, we can't drive by a homeless person without my kids wanting to give them something. Uh So it's just something that, um, I saw growing up that my parents did and that I wanted to get involved with um, when I got here to Gainesville, just kind of continue that. And I was able to do that through the, the Gainesville Catholic Worker House. But but really, you know, it can affect anyone. And I feel like people with disabilities are a little bit more, I don't want to say likely, but just because of the, you know, the income and being able to hold down a job, it can be hard if you're in constant pain or you, oh, yeah. you know, you you know, your meds cost too much and you can't, right. You know, it's just, it's hard, you know, it's, it's real it's hard. hard. And I really feel for people when I see them because they're good people, you know, a lot of, they're all, they're good people yeah. that just have bad things happen to them. Yeah. And I think that, um, that's all people. I think all people are innately good, you know, and, the, and they have, everyone has redeeming qualities and things in them that, that are good. People just have sometimes just have bad luck and they don't have the support that they need that I've always had um, a place in my, I'll always have a place in my heart for, for people that, that struggle. Yeah. And, and this, I'm so glad you're illuminating so many important things for uh, people that don't have a lot of interaction uh, with, with people who are homeless. Um, you're, you're echoing things that I have encountered myself and, and certainly one of them is is um, to not think that we're not uh, susceptible to being homeless ourselves, no matter how much we might be financially or materialistically secure right now. Mm-hmm. You're right. We are one crisis away mm-hmm. from being homeless. Here at our center, um, you know, it hits home here, too. Uh, we, we had a board president that went back a, a couple of dec- decades ago, but a professional and everything. And Um, you know, he never probably thought he would be homeless, but wound up homeless and, uh, you know, died. Yeah. I mean, died from pneumonia while living out in anyone. It really can. It can. Yeah. And, and I encourage anyone who, um, may encounter people that are homeless. Uh, if you have any snap judgments or you think, uh, you know, it's them, not me and, and get into this them and other, you know, kind of mind frame Mm -hmm. to, to, to have what you were alluding to empathy, like this really, uh, can happen to anyone and that the, the the people that I've encountered that are that are homeless are like you said, um, they're so nice. Everyday people, they're not. And they try, and they try, and they want that chance. But it's like if you, 
it's like this hole that you can't get out of. Right. And, and, you know, what you get from people tends to be stuff that you wouldn't, I mean, I don't know, like, I I think of a story when we were, when I was working at the, um, at one of the labor pools and we would bake bread from scratch at three in the morning, every, it was, it was every Thursday that we would go and um, we'd get up early, go and and bake the bread. um, And we'd, we'd put cinnamon and raisins and just kind of like cinnamon and sugar and just really like, so it would have like little swirls on the inside. And we're sitting there, you know, the bread is hot, we're cutting it and I'm, you know, putting butter on it. And there was this gentleman that he, I kept offering it to him and he kept saying, no, no, I'll get the next one. I'll get the next one, cutting another slice. No, no. And then finally we were on the very last, like two or three slices. And I was like, if you want some now's the chance, you know, now's the chance it's going to go soon. And he's like, Oh, I was just waiting for a piece without mold. And my heart just broke because he assumed that we were giving him moldy bread. And that was the only reason we were giving it to him was because it was bad. And, and I just, I almost, I almost started crying wow. because he, I, I had to tell him like, Oh my gosh, no, we, we baked this bread this morning. I mean, it's, it's baked from scratch. It's delicious. It's warm. Um, this is cinnamon and sugar, you know, um, and that's always kind of struck. I don't know. That's always struck me that that story that people just assume that they're getting the leftovers or the trash or the stuff that nobody else wants. Right. Um, whenever I give something to homeless people, I don't give them my leftovers. (laughs) I give them new, you know, new food (laughs) that, that I would eat or clothes that, um, I would wear nothing, you know, if it's something is stained or ripped or whatever, I throw it out. I mean, I don't, that's not what I donate. Yeah. So yeah. One of the things that you mentioned too, when we're talking about the one degree, of separation between uh, people that are, you know, housed and, and people that are homeless. Um, it was medical debt. And from what I understand, the most now common form of, of debt in America is uh, bills that are related to healthcare uh, mm-hmm. that people have. And the number one cause of bankruptcy, people filing for personal bankruptcy is due to debt because of healthcare costs. And 75% of the people that are filing for bankruptcy due to health related costs had insurance. Yep. You know, so it's not just like uninsured, you know, this, that, and the other, but it's people that are underinsured, probably had no idea that they're underinsured by necessity are, are needing health care and incurring all right. this debt. And then there they are having to declare bankruptcy. And guess what? You know, this is likely the same group of people that are uh, potentially uh, most vulnerable to, to being homeless. Uh, yep. out of these things and so it's just very real for all of us and 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 i hope that it is yeah people hear what you're saying you know this immense amount of empathy that you have for for people that are homeless and avoid any of these kind of snap judgments or stereotypes that that we have uh, about people that are homeless because the at least for the most part that i've encountered and it sounds like that you encountered are are, are empathetic friendly smart i've met many of them that are highly intelligent oh, yeah. Uh, people that lack, you know, social supports, you know, sometimes and often, um, you know, disability is highly represented in, in the population of people. It really that are is. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I have seen that. I have seen that a lot, you know, because if you're if you're out just working on what you've been given from somebody who pulls over and gives you a couple bucks, you have to choose. Do I pay for this medication yeah. <laughs> or do I pay for food? Yeah. Um, and I don't blame them. 
they can't, you know, right. you have to feed yourself and you need water and you need, I mean, it's survival. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah. So you have to choose between the $300 medication, you know, yeah. or, or a week of food. Yep. So it, it's hard. And then, you know, a lot of people, they lose their job, they lose their insurance, they lose their insurance, they can't take their meds. They, it's just snowball. It, it's this, it's a snowball. It spirals down. And before you know it, you're in this hole that's just seems so hard to get out of. Yep. And all these people were somebody's child, you know, someone's baby, someone to care about, I know, you know, not just know. this adult that you see in front of you that, you know, can, people can have physical snap judgments about, but this is a fellow human being. Um, yeah. yeah, that no one necessarily chooses to end up in that, no, in that situation. No, not at like all. And, and sometimes, you know, I've found that some family members don't even know that their family member right? is, is, is in this predicament. No, absolutely. I, I've known people that were sleeping out of their car and didn't know it until after the fact, you know, myself. Right. Yeah. 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 No, it, it happens. Um, it happens a lot more than, than people I think either talk about or know about or want to acknowledge. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I remember when I was interviewing, you know, I, I had that on my resume and that was one of the things that got me this job was we, we talked a little bit about, um, you know, experience interacting with people with disability and, and yeah. And that was part of the reason that I, I believe I got this job in the first place. So the, um, the job that you're currently at or the job I met you in? No, the, the previous job. Okay. Yeah. The, the job with the disability and health program. Okay. We're, we're about to get there. I wanted to uh, also get into your experience, uh, your other experience with disability before coming on to uh, the disability and health program. So tell me a little bit about the insights you gained from, from helping this family uh, with their young child who had special needs. And what it's like yeah. for, for them or, or, you know, I love that you came out with patience and, and the necessity for patience. Oh, yeah, that's number one. That's huge. <laughs> that's huge. And so I guess, um, you know, maybe give some insight to any people that are out there that might not understand some of the challenges that a, a family could go through in an experience like that. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, when I started with this family, there were three kids, <laughs> And by the time I was done, there were five. Yeah, yeah basketball and, team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and um, yeah, at the time, it was all age-appropriate behavior. You know, it was the tantrums and the throwing and the hitting and the, uh -huh. you know. And it, as the years went by, I was with them for over 10 years. You know, it became less age-appropriate. And that's when we started to see and the diagnoses were made and the medication were it was prescribed. And, you know, it was... It was a long sort of road mm -hmm. for this family. And I got, you know, I was front row seat. I mean, I remember when we went to the therapist, I went with her. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was me and the mom. Part you know, of the family. Worked. Wow. And so it was me and mom talking about, you know, what his issues were and what, and what he needed to work with and, and what worked for him and what didn't work for him. And, you know, I had to get really creative, find what motivated him and, and, I don't want to say bribe because that's not, a, that's not a good, but you know, I would encourage him and I'd say, Oh, well, let's, you know, let's do this. And then maybe we can go outside and, and build that fort you were talking about, uh -huh. or, you know, just, just really try to, you know, get them through that school so we could do some of those other things. They were homeschooled. So, so yeah, I, you know, I learned a lot about being flexible about not have, not always having to stick with the plan, but as long as it gets done, you know, letting the child pick wherever, wherever it was, um, 
okay to do so, you know, as long as we get it all done, you could, you tell me what you want to do first. Like, well, you lead Mm. and, you know, just trying to make it fun because, you know, he, he had a hard time. He, He got in trouble a lot. And so trying to, to be flexible, to be patient, I think it helped that it was a job. So I was able to, um, I didn't have as big of a, a weight mm-hmm. as say mom did, Yeah. you know, I kept them safe and, but you know, he, I have so many stories. I have so many stories. Those kids were a hoot, <laughs> but also just all over the place. Yeah. So, so, so how did you, uh, um, cultivate patience and adaptability that's what i'm hearing here like are I needed had to. you know you have yeah. to because you know the times when i would try to put my foot down he would get it would get very heated mm-hmm. and i mean I, at one point he, he punched me in the face oh, <laughs> like, my only black eye i've ever had in my life oh, was like wow. uh, <laughs> <laughs> he could you know it could go the total other way yeah. if i didn't if i let it get that way so you know um gosh, I think I was trying to get like the computer back and I was worried he was going to throw it oh boy. and break it. And so, you know, I, I wasn't as chill and calm as I would normally be. And I was a little bit like too, like, just give me my laptop. Yeah. 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 And then I got a, got a shiner. We're all human. Um, yeah. Clocked by a six-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> Clocked by a six-year-old. Exactly. Yeah. Oh my gosh. But you know, he, you know, I, I can't say that that was the last time I got hit by a kid because my kid right? has hit me. <laughs> I can't remember what I mean. It's, it's a little, full contact you know? sport, this parenting thing. Yeah, yeah, no, I know. If it's not like they change the diaper, they kick you in the face. Right? You know, it's oh, just, yeah. Yeah. Bone, it's, bone it's is bone. Kid. Yeah, it can hurt. But yeah, so we, you know, like, oh, gosh, they, I, I miss them, though. You know, it was it was always an adventure when I was there. They lived on a farm. There was goats oh, and wow. donkeys and horses and chickens and they had pigs at one point, pork and beans. That's what they named the pigs. <laughs> nice. I love it. But it, it, was, it was fun. I mean, I think the hard times were hard, but I think if you focus on, try not to focus so much on that and focus on on the good, mm-hmm. because he was he was a sweet boy. I mean, he is. He's just, well, now he's a man. <laughs> he's like 19 or 20. Now. Oh, goodness. But, um, but uh, I mean, he was just a sweet boy. Like he, he always wanted to snuggle and he always wanted to be like, just, just sweet. You know, he just had moments where he couldn't, sure. he couldn't contain it, you know, yeah. and, and, and trying to have that not be caused by me <laughs> was like my, my big goal is gotcha. like, if I could have him, me not be the cause of that, yeah. you know, yeah. be flexible enough that, that I still get, I, you know, I still got everything done. It wasn't like I had to give to the point where things weren't getting done. He had a school was always done. He had chores that we did. I mean, there, you know, there were things that I I made sure that were done, take care of the animals and, and feed the animals and, and, you know, pick up and things. And you know, he helped, he, he did, he had, they all had responsibilities that they had to um, do, you know, and, and school was the big one. And we always had school done. It's just sometimes, you know, and I think all kids, I mean, I see with my kid now, my children now, Uh um, you know, when you tell a child, no, (laughs) it's not always a good thing. No. Um, So you try to find, find other ways. You don't have to say no. You can say, okay, yeah, let's do that. But first let's do this. (laughs) You know, Um, I would love to do that. That sounds like such a great idea. Let's come up with a plan on how we're going to do that after we do math. Yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) And you know, I, I really tried not to say no. 
that was a big one. Yeah, that's a hard one. I think a better word for your uh, bribing would be uh, incentivizing, you know, <laughs> like you just said, like, yeah, yeah, like you just said for, we can do this after your math homework yeah. is, a, is a huge part of it. I was just listening to an old clip from uh, Wayne Dyer and he was going on about how we don't like, no one likes to be told what to do. Like, and he, he was pointing to, you know, his experiences as a parent and kids and our spirits just want to be free and not contained. There's something natural, I think, about that. Yeah. And my goodness, if the people that you were working with had, um, basically, it sounds like a farm. The work is never finished there. My goodness. It was a farm. Wow. It was a farm. But it was a fun farm. It wasn't like a, like a working farm. All right. <laughs> it was yeah. like a, we have a lot of property. How do we, how do we, yeah. <laughs> how do we use this property? That's a lot of work. And so, yeah, they, it was a, it was a farm, but it was, it was fun. I mean, I remember one time this child let all the goats loose <laughs> like the males in with the females oh boy. and they were separated for uh -huh. obvious reasons and so yeah. we'd have to go and like go in and try to figure out like okay you go over here you go over oh here. my goodness you're right <laughs> you never knew what you're walking into it keeps you on your toes not never a dull moment right never a dull moment and it was so funny because you know they had they had a couple of boys and so when i saw that i was having boys i panicked a little bit like oh no uh -oh. <laughs> is this what it's going no my husband had to tell me we're not going to have a farm. <laughs> like there's going to be some key differences. That's awesome. He's like, we're not going to homeschool. And here we are homeschooling during the pandemic. So. <laughs> never say never, right? <laughs> never say never. But I think the farm, I think I can confidently say that we're never going to have a farm. Yeah, that's no joke. Well, now let's, all right, let's shift gears then. Um, so the Office of Disability and Health you know, I can't say specifically the, the time that we engaged and interacted, but I, I got to say that you uh, and your, your, your name was on it as far as uh, being one of the people that helped to produce. I think it was in 2015, uh, your group produced the, um, a disability report, you know, of statistics across the uh -huh. state of Florida. Yeah, Man, that is still to this day, I think really holds a lot of water and value and, and is relevant. And, uh, and I think a lot of the trends and likelihood sadly, the disparities that were shown in that report still stick. But, you know, that report I use quite a bit in my citing of, you know, in, in grants and contracts as far as rationale and justification anytime in giving presentations. Even some of the re you know times I've been here on the podcast is to show that people with disabilities are two to three times more likely to have cardiovascular disease, twice as likely to have cancer, you know, mm -hmm. twice as likely to have di diabetes, depending on the respiratory disease, five to, you know, seven to 11 times more likely to have respiratory disease, two and a half times more likely to have clinical depression. You know, you all went through employment, uh, education. I mean, man, this report, I got to link it up with these show notes because it's just such a really informative picture of, of disability, its prevalence within the state. Um, and et cetera. So I know I was captivated from from that and the work that you all did. And that was just really scratching the surface on all the different things that this uh, program did. So so maybe, you know, start there and just talk to us about what is the Office of Disability Health Program? What were some of your experiences uh, while you were with them? Yeah. Yeah. So um, so before I forget, I just sent you um, a couple of years ago, the CDC, who was our funder, um, developed this disability health data system. I don't know if I mentioned it to you or if you know about it, uh -huh. but it's an online um, database of all the BRFSS data mm -hmm. plotted similarly to the way that we had it in our report, mm -hmm. but they have it by state. I don't know if they drill down to the county level, but you might want to check it out. It might, it might be something that might be beneficial. 
but the disability health program, you know, was one of 19 CDC funded state level disability and health grants. During this last round of funding, we worked to make evidence-based health promotion programs accessible to people with disabilities. Our, our program worked and coordinated with several other programs to ensure the goal was, you know, being inclusive. So we worked with school health programs to ensure that they were being inclusive of children with disabilities, uh-huh. diabetes prevention programs. <clears throat> we also worked to train healthcare providers on the importance of being disability competent. Yeah. We did some work with you guys on emergency preparedness. Yep. And really it, it was it was every round it seemed like it changed a little bit the what, what we were asked to do. Um, but we were able to we were able to shift with that and and provide, you know, what the CDC was looking for. You know, unfortunately I think with COVID, and I don't want to say, I, you know, I don't know, but I think with COVID, some priorities shifted and some funding was the amount of states that they were able to fund dropped oh, yeah. pretty, pretty drastically yeah. by um, almost half. Um, they went from 19 states to 10 states and we did not make the cut. So last year, um, you know, kind of what I had been fearing ever since I started a grant, 100% funded grant job finally happened. But you know, I had eleven years, and and I think we I think we did um, we did a lot of good in Florida, and I'm I'm thankful that you know the individuals that I worked with, the SIL included, your Center for Independent Living, can keep that going, you know, and can keep doing some of the work that we had that we had been doing that we had been involved with. produced a ton of awesome work that is sustainable you know and that's the idea right mm-hmm. is to outlive the, right. the funding source and and uh, for Absolutely. those that do not know you know universities you know like the University of Florida live and die based on grant funding and and uh, it's not uh, always guaranteed to keep living beyond uh, mm-hmm. its years and it's very competitive uh, to get yes. grants and to go get awarded from them and uh, yeah, hundred percent. I saw a lot of funding being diverted due to COVID, even frozen. I'm not sure where you know money would be needed and spent, and you know we're still seeing a lot of that now. Right. But I got I gotta say um, that data report huge. Yeah, I'm aware of that CDC portal. Thanks for sharing that. We'll link that up in the show notes too. Very awesome interactive uh, statistical. Uh, platform there for people to really look at and see some of the the issues that are related to people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. And you know what what I appreciated for what, what you all did was you did such an excellent job in communicating the research and practice related to disability. So sometimes those can be in silos, right? So you got research right. about disability and you got the researchers and academics, you know, pulling out some really important information regarding the descriptive and analytical statistical knowledge about disability, evidence-based practices with disability. But then you also have like the world when, when I met you that we're in, we're worrying about serving people who have disabilities, you know, applications related to it and et cetera. But you all seem to just really be able to straddle that fence, which I was very impressed with. So maybe my question would be is, you know, what is the importance in integrating research and practice related to health promotion and disability? You know, I think the one feeds into the other. So you know, the research helps helps you see where the gaps are and where more needs to be focused, more efforts mm-hmm. need to be um, implemented. The doing 
you know, unfortunately, we work through subcontracts. So I wouldn't say unfortunately, but, uh, you know, we work through subcontracts. And so a lot of the folks that were the doers, we we had to subcontract with mm-hmm. because, um, you know, we had this, gosh, I don't know, we weren't direct we weren't providers. We weren't allowed or mm-hmm. whatever to be um, direct providers. So, so we we were able to, to, you know, to use through these subcontracts. We were able to fund the doers, so to speak, um, the schools that were implementing the CSPAP, the the Comprehensive School Physical Activity Program, um, the diabetes prevention programs that were funding. Uh-huh the diabetes prevention programs and, you know, and then you guys who were doing all that wonderful emergency preparedness work for us. So we were, we were, I think, a a conduit to that. And our, our role was figuring out where, where that needed to go based on the research, like where we were going to focus on based on the research. Yeah. Yeah. Evidence-based targeted interventions, Mm -hmm. place-based interventions. Right. So you just mentioned like three awesome projects right there, like that are high needs in in areas of disability, promoting physical activity. Um, People with disabilities tend to be less physically active, live more sedentary lives Mm -hmm. than people without disabilities. So there you are in schools, putting uh, into practice evidence-based programs to promote physical activity in people with disabilities, chronic disease management of diabetes. So just mentioned people with disabilities Mm -hmm. are two times more likely to have diabetes. And right now the healthcare field for a while now has been sounding the alarms to the general population that diabetes is like the the biggest threat to our healthcare system that's out there because the incidence rates of diabetes is just skyrocketing. The cost of treating it, the health related outcomes that are associated with it are super Mm -hmm. alarming for the general population. And you look at our population and it's two times as more, you know, yes, double this alarming rate. And so there you are doing a chronic disease management program that's tailored and accessible for people with disabilities. And yes, with us, it was an honor to get into business with you all to ensure that people with disabilities who are more vulnerable before, during, and after disasters have the access that they're needed, that is needed to ensure that, you know, they can continue to live independently or have the, mm-hmm. um, you know, accommodations program access and effective communication that's necessary before, during, and after. And so, you know, you just look at like right there and you did more than just these three programs plus the data report. And you all were wide and deep, you know, regarding health and disability. What either those or uh, other things out there that really jumped out to you as important issue areas related to disability and health? Yeah, I think um, another thing that we worked very intensively on was educating healthcare providers and and students that are or pre-professional uh-huh. students on the importance of being disability competent. And that was another another training that we did. Mm-hmm. That was very popular. And, you know, I think at least in the short term, which with what we were able to gauge with the pre and post tests, uh, effective in educating people on how to speak to and about people with disabilities, how to um, how to communicate effectively with people with varying different types of disabilities. We had um, quotes from individuals that were read by them in the slides sort of embedded um, their recording of their healthcare experience their experiences and why these types of trainings are important. So yeah, you know, we, we ran the gamut on, on that training, um, including data about people with disabilities and their um, healthcare needs and the importance of, you know, healthcare providers being able to 
communicate effectively with them. We had, you know, the communication tips, we had accessibility tips, we had people's own experiences um, in there. And it, and it was a really great, it was a really great training, a really great tool that we were able to train um, uh, hundreds of professionals and pre-professionals um, in, in a few years. I'm glad you're mentioning this. Uh, this is so relevant. And, and talk about, you know, uh, a program that you all developed that is going to outlive the funding that produced this. So you're talking about the train, mm-hmm. the train, the trainer program you all created, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So you're, you're pointing to uh, this training belies like what the American Medical Association says is the biggest issue relating to healthcare, which is health literacy, the ability of healthcare providers to communicate in a language that people can understand and act on the big emphasis on acting on it as well, you know, not just understanding it, but then, you know, go, go and apply it outside of the clinic, especially. And they cite that as like the number one factor in terms of health outcomes. They're throwing lumping in there, the social determinants or, or, you know, demographics and race and all these other things that, you know, are attributed to being big influencers on health outcomes. They've really identified health literacy as being it. And then, Another critically important layer that is interconnected with it, but but also I think stands on its own from what I'm hearing you saying is cultural competency, understanding the cultural related factors that are also involved with communicating with people. So, you know, we can say people with disabilities, but then that's obviously a culture, but then we can go more narrow and talk about specific types of disabilities. So, you know, people that are deaf or people that, you know, have autism or people, you know, that are blind. And and then there's subcultures within the general culture of itself. And I don't know about you, but I was always very struck by um, whether it's, uh, you know, professionals that that are in healthcare or even um, students that were pre-health professionals, you know, how much they were learning from this and how much uh, aha moments they were having um, regarding health literacy and cultural competency. So I think that's one of the greatest products that you all created, you know, among the many. Yeah, no, um, it, it was, it was, it was great. I mean, we really, we, we got, it was very interactive. We got a lot of feedback from students, mostly from the students were very, you know, vocal, you know, they were able to understand, you know, put themselves in other shoes and just try to understand what it would feel like to be in a, you know, to be in a doctor's office and not have the doctor really believe what you're saying Yeah. to not have your, you know, your issues that you're there for validated and, you know, to be made to feel like it was because of your disability and not, you know, I don't know, just like, oh, well, that's because of your X, Y, Z, as opposed to let's try to figure out what this really, really is. I don't think people think about those types of things, you know, like you're, you're not speaking to the patient, you're speaking to their care provider, you know, their care, yeah. their, their person that cares for them, yeah. you know, just, just that respect factor and that trying to put yourself in that person's place, like what that must feel like things that people don't really think about unless you're really asked to think about it. And, and what that does is to me, it just opens the, the door to empathy you know, to have empathy, yeah. you know, for others. So we can say health literacy, you know, ability to communicate, you know, talk about culture and the importance of understanding culture. But ultimately, that all has to drive towards having empathy. And, and from what I've read in the, the, the literature uh, about empathy and healthcare, it's huge. Um, you know, a mm-hmm. lot of times that they're, they're associating sometimes, uh, you know, health outcomes with the amount of empathy um, so-called bedside manner, perhaps, 
that healthcare providers having and connecting with their patients and, and seeing them for a, a real person, not just as a patient and, and right. how important that can go towards people feeling heard, other people being present with them. A lot of them, you know, times anyone, you know, that's going to receive healthcare could, you know, have just the need to, to have that connection with somebody else and feel the genuine concern and compassion people might have for one another. That's medicine too. You're training to really drive and, and getting that. To me, that's a huge outcome there. That's big time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, another thing I appreciated with you, what you all did is that you would have, man, I, you all seemed like you were constantly hope, hosting webinars where you brought community of professionals and service providers and people with disabilities together. You had annual face-to-face, you know, before COVID, of course, you know, conferences where you had, again, the same populations that were coming together and connecting. You were putting out newsletters. You had a social media presence. Maybe talk to me about just communicating science, communicating research to the different communities that were out there. Because I think we can all see right now in the COVID pandemic, we were getting to see a lot more people now, the importance of communicating research and science to the population. Why it's so important to have our communication very much communicated in a way that people can understand, but also be able to ask questions and and just understanding science and research and how information can change over time. And tailored tailored to the audience that you're presenting it to. I mean, our our tip sheets for healthcare providers on how to be, you know, that kind of stemmed from the training looked very different than what what we put out for for people with disabilities. You know, we had tip sheets for for people with disabilities on um, on prediabetes and the importance of, you know, just just simple tips. You know, um, simple tips that could be that could be easily remembered, you know, like what a portion of meat looks like, you know, it looks like mm-hmm. uh, a deck of cards or about a cup is like your, your hand put into a fist. Yeah. Um, just little things that, that give you, um, it's tangible. Yeah. Yeah. That's tangible. what do you mean? It's three to five servings of fruit and vegetables. What is that? Uh, right. <laughs> and, and yeah. And then what is a serving yeah. as opposed to, uh, yeah. you know, keeping it simple, keeping it, um, tangible, and and that that was very different than what we what we put out to to healthcare providers about how they could make their space more accessible to you know to various individuals. So you know just really figuring out who the um, the audience was going to be and how we were going to disseminate you know the the work. That's huge. Yeah. So we used to do data reports. I used to go out to the legislators and you know data briefs. I should say. So yeah. I mean it was. It was constantly trying to figure out, you know, who is this going to go to? How are we going to disseminate this? And then what, what, what should they know? Yeah. From the information that we have, what can we portray to them that would be beneficial or useful for them to know? That's awesome. Communicating research and science to, to, to people is so important. And I love how you're tailoring it to the audience. And every audience is going to be different in terms of what they're wanting to hear or need. And then, you know, how it's framed and packaged. And I love that you boil it down to what are, the, what are the key points that we want to get out of this? You know, or the audience would want to get out of this and how to boil it down to those kind of things, because it could be information overload. I think a lot of times, you know, again, I'm Mm -hmm. thinking about, you know, how the research and science has been communicated by public health professionals to, uh, you know, our population, you know, it can 
be communicated in a way that there's so much information and hearing it in a high anxiety state, it's hard to retain those like few nuggets that really people really need to hear and take yeah. away from it, right? Without bombarding people with so much, you know, information and, and this and that and the other. And then, you know, how, how information can change over time, right? As, as we learn more, you know, things can evolve. Mm-hmm. And, you know, understanding that, Maybe we need to communicate that to our audience as well, that, you know, this isn't set in stone. This is the best to our knowledge that we believe right now is important, but things can happen as we get more information where we might communicate things differently or the information might might change. Because I think a lot of, you know, with the COVID pandemic and how research has been communicated, I think it's communicated with such certainty that when more information right. comes in and, and we our understanding changes, I think people think yeah. science is so rigid, like what? This was a fact, yeah. this is a law, but no, I don't know right. how your take has been on all, yeah, how it's been communicated given that you have so much experience in communicating science. Yeah, no, I think I think it's gotten better. People have gotten better at understanding that, you know, you only know as much as you know in that moment. Right. And science is all about learning new things and that changes what your base, what is the knowledge at this point? You know, it was all you know, if you had, if you got the vaccine, then you were, then you didn't have to mask. Uh-huh. You didn't have to, you know, you didn't have to take all these other precautions. And then it, you know, and then it came to light that you do, yep, yep. You, you still do, and you can still transmit it and you can still uh-huh. get it. And you just, you know, you might not get a sick. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, you just have to go with what's being said in the moment because that's the, that's the latest yeah. That's the latest yeah. news, so to speak. And, and just understanding, you know, science is a method right. of trying to understand what is known, not known, asking good questions, developing the right experimental design and methods to answer those questions, looking at the data, interpreting the data, and then it leads to more questions. <laughs> and then right. round and around we go more than anything. Now I want to kind of take us to um, this new position that you're in, this new area that you're in. And if you want to talk about what you're up to now or uh, anything that you're doing that's relevant to disability and anything that you've done leading up until now that has helped to prepare you uh, for everything that you're doing professionally. Yeah, no, I think um, I I love my new position. I'm, I'm really enjoying it. I've only been doing it for a few months. I'm with a private um, healthcare company, and we just work with hospitals. You know, we help improve their processes, and and I'm I'm loving it. It's it's really been wonderful. It's been um, it's different than what I was doing before, very different. But the the program management sort of basics have remained the same. You know, and and I've I've really enjoyed it. I've I think the biggest thing I miss I miss my old my old contacts. I miss, you know, my old coworkers. A lot of the disability partners that I worked with were and are good friends. You know, I do miss having that. I don't want to say excuse, but you know, just like, Hey, well, let's talk about this, but also how's your son? Yeah. 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 <laughs> and, we're a tight community. Know. Yep. Yeah. And, and so I do, I do miss that. Um, but you know, for everything, there is a season and I'm just thankful that a lot of the individuals that I worked with are still are still in the field. So it's not um, it hasn't been 
you know, I haven't no, I haven't seen that we've we've lost a lot of people that have. Everyone's still kind of working on the same on the same types of things. So, so that that heartens me that that some good is still going on out there regarding disability and and the resources that are available to people. Yep, the world is still turning, uh, even in mm-hmm. your absence, and it's turning much better because of your presence that was there. And life is seasonal, and uh, it wouldn't surprise me if. Uh, the orbits once again connected and, and aligned with one another. You know, one thing I do want to put out there is that you're showing that your work that you did with the Office of Disability and Health Program is super still relevant, is that Centers for Independent Living nationally have this funding opportunity that's called the Public Health Workforce Initiative, where they're trying to in, improve the amount of people that are in public health working uh, with or in Centers for Independent Living, which I think is a phenomenal shift and, and, and an important one, and largely due to COVID. But I know when I you know, initially first came here uh, as a Center for Independent Living, one of the you know, philosophical tenets, which is a good one, is the demedicalization of disability, not looking at people mm-hmm. with disabilities as a you know, medical problem that needs to be cured, and fixed, but rather looking at the social and environmental context of what disability exists in, which I think is awesome. And, and to me, I see an alignment with public health because, you know, there's still disparities that happen with people with disabilities, like we mentioned earlier in the show, with chronic disease that are preventable and all these other things that I find the reasons for it is at the social and environmental level that is attributed to it. And, and when I first came onto the scene, I didn't hear within the Independent Living Network the term that I know you're well aware of is social determinants of health or health mm-hmm. disparities or health inequities. And since I've been here over the last six, seven years, I'm seeing this word being these phrase, this jargon being thrown around way more. And now here yeah. we are with this funding opportunity to increase the amount of people that are working within the independent living network that are within public health. And, and because I see what Centers for Independent Living do is we really do address these social determinants of health, education, employment, housing, transportation, social supports. These, these factors are the most influential in terms of influencing how long people live, the resiliency to those chronic diseases we just mentioned, quality of life. And so it's really a joy to see this shift that's happening. And I appreciate you connecting me with uh, the people that are still there with the Office of Disability and Health. And I've had conversations with them and uh, very eager to see how, again, leveraging research-based resources in a way that's going to be applied and put into practice. And so I'm very excited about this new initiative. And and thank you for for helping to open some doors and, and reconnect some relationships. Of course. Yeah, I'm happy to do that. It sounds like a really interesting funding opportunity. And I really hope that you guys that you guys get it. Yeah, it sounds like we, we are. And it's just a matter of choosing what to do with it. And uh, there's a there's a lot of buzz right now among the other directors uh, in the state about this funding opportunity and, you know, perhaps uh, piecemealing it together into a, a big project. That I think yeah, could, that sounds yeah, wonderful. Yeah, could really could really help out as it pertains to you know addressing issues that are uh, related to COVID. Well, Claudia, I'm I'm gonna uh, you know kind of round us out with the last couple of questions here, but um, sure. one of them being, you know, what are what are some of the important like life lessons that you are taking away uh, with the experiences you've talked about and shared with us here? You know, all the way from you know working with people that are that are homeless with this family, the disability, you know, health program that you worked in that you have taken away 
about life or how to live life or some of the values that are important and near and dear to your heart through your experiences in working in the world of disability? You know, um, I, I would say to just always be grateful for what you have, always be, um, you know, I don't know. I just, you find the joy in, in wherever you are um, in life. There's always good. I tell my son, you know, some, he, he's, they're young still, but you know, it's very much like, Oh, this is the worst day of my life. You know, just, just <laughs> these horrible, you know, it's like your Lego tower. Broke, Catastrophizing. Right? Not yeah. to minimize, you know, not to minimize people's experiences at all. You know, yeah. of course not, but to try to find the good, try to find there, there is always good. Per, yeah. Perspective, right. It's all, it's all yeah. relative. <laughs> it is. And yeah, I, I really think that's, that's that's the big thing um there's always good there's always goodness in people and in circumstances and in experiences and and try to and if you find that then you know i think it'll it'll help you know even when things aren't great yeah find the good always something to be grateful for no matter what the situation is i i find that to always be this you know and sometimes we got to look a a little harder than others but it's there and sometimes it is relational you know like as as bad as like a situation may may be even if it's more catastrophic than a lego tower going down um (laughs) you know even if it is being homeless you know the the fact that there is a place that is giving out bread Mm-hmm. And there's many people that are in homeless situations where there is no one giving out anything to help feed somebody. And so, yeah, it's all relative. It's all a continuum. I think in that sense, we all do have something to be grateful for. It's a good yeah, one. Yeah. And there's hope and there's hope. I mean, even, yeah, hope. there's, yeah. there's, there's hope, there's hope and there's goodness and there's people who care and there's people that, that love and, yeah. you know, that care f- for you, you know, that I think, you know, I, I, me and my kids, we pray anytime we hear an ambulance, we pray for whoever's in that ambulance. And so there's people that are thinking and praying of you that don't even know you and and don't, you know, that don't know your circumstances. And, but yeah. I love that. I, I love that so much. Like um, the fact that there's people that we have never met that have empathy for us. That and, and the fact that you you sit there with your kids and pray for you know people that are, are in an ambulance or going by just for me fills my bucket and underscores hope springs eternal like you were saying hope mm-hmm. for humanity because I I think it's I don't want to say easy but sometimes it's 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 more alluring for people to to see you know the things in humanity that are going on nowadays I just saw an uh, American Psychological Association's recent report on stress and like they're you know, numbers of people that are reporting stress, of course, are like gone up a lot. And, yeah. you know, and, and so it, I think it's you know, probably part and parcel of human nature and, and what's going on nowadays and our you know, communications about it that, you know, it's mm-hmm. easy to look at, you know, the, you know, the negative parts of, that are going on right now. But the fact is, is that there's people like you and your family that are caring about people you've never, ever, ever, ever met. And, and for me, you know, I, I think about okay when whenever I feel down or something like that there there's people that I know that care about me but man the idea that there's people out there that I don't even know that care about me that's uplifting that's huge yeah. that's super uplifting Claudia thank you for sharing that oh. so one one of the uh questions I ask all our guests is what does living independently the independent life mean to you Okay. Well, um, you know, it's simple. I think for me, 
independent living means freedom, oh. you know, the, the freedom to live uh-huh. and make your choices however you want to make them like everyone else. Uh-huh. Being Having the freedom to do that. Yeah, that the freedom thing is huge uh, right now, you know, especially to be able to do that. And one of the things I found, I don't know about you, but and maybe this goes back to the patience thing. And when you were working uh, with the children of that family is uh, having the freedom to make even wrong choices and learning from them, right. you know, and allowing people to do that, you know, in a space that's going to be safe, but that's also educational uh, as well. Yeah. Right. I think you learn the, you learn the most by making mistakes. Right? I mean, I tell, I tell my kids mistakes, make your brain grow. <laughs> I love it's that. okay to make mistakes. Mistakes are how people learn. That's how you learn. That's right. Mistakes make your brain grow. That needs to be a bumper sticker. You should cash in on that <laughs> trademark right now, Claudia. That's a that's a winner. That's a mistakesmakeyourbraingrow.com. Mistakes make your Let's do it. Let's start it. Let's get a let's get a let's get a movement started on that one. That's huge. No, because I think like um, you know, not only does it lead to growth, but it helps us embrace the mistake is a good mentality in in a way, and mm-hmm. and uh, owning up to the fact that we make mistakes is a good thing too. Yeah, humility. You know, it goes towards humility. So you know. Uh, Learning is huge with humility, making mistakes and, and not being afraid to admit that we make mistakes. That goes towards humility. Yeah. I've been on a big humility kick lately about like this. This is such a high value and virtue. Yeah, I think, you know, I never thought of it that way. I just but it's true. Yeah. I mean, being able to admit that you've made a mistake is an act of humility. I mean, that, that is what it is. I never thought about that. Yeah, yeah I never thought, thought of it that way. But it's true. Yeah, yeah. Humility is good. It puts us in a place of learning. Mm-hmm. The, the more we can try to, I think, work towards that, the, the better we'll all be. I agree. Claudia, thank you so much for taking the time to connect with us, to share you, your life experiences and this great wisdom that you have to offer the world. You're, I just want to acknowledge you as somebody that um, with the work that you did, you know, that you shared with us and, and caring about people that often are just not seen. You know, the people and if they're mm-hmm. seen, they're super judged, you know, the homeless population, you right. know, and, and, and working with a family and, and you appreciate this now too. Uh, you know, having your family and I appreciate oh, yeah. it having my family, Absolutely. having support. Oh, my gosh. Like it's a game changer, Absolutely. you know, and, and so that family that had you there while they are doing the best they can. Uh, with everything they got, I know you. you know, they must just love you and be, oh, yeah. be already a, a member of their family, uh, adopted member at the very least. And then uh, everything you did with the disability health program, we'll link the them up in our show notes for sure. But the work that you did with there is huge. Like I said before, you know all these different issue areas that you all worked in, promoting the competencies and healthcare providers, making sure that you communicate and disseminate information in a way that the audience can understand. It's so wide and deep. And what I, I find to really be the holy grail of any kind of program or initiative or intervention, sustainable. Mm-hmm. How do we make things sustainable after the funding right. goes away, after right. the staff that is there, you know, isn't there to be able to push this thing forward? Like to me, that is still people are trying to figure out how to crack the code on sustainability. And it seems like in a large measure, due to your efforts, your talents, your skills, your abilities, this program is sustaining itself and and is continuing to live on and uh, being put into practice and connecting two worlds together that really need to be connected in order to make what I consider to be important change in the world. So, you know, your work still lives on, you know, in many different spheres. And and Claudia, you're a remarkable person. I just have to acknowledge you. you Yeah, you're amazing. 
Well, I, I'm just so very thankful um, that you reached out and um, I'm thankful to have gotten to work with you for all these years. And, yeah. and I'm thankful that you're at the helm of, of our local SIL. And I'm just very, I'm, I'm thankful. Yeah. I'm just thankful all around. Gratitude. So, so thank you for everything that you do and um, you continue to do for everyone. And um, I'm here, you know, even though I'm no longer in that position, I'm, I'm always here. So just feel free to reach out if, if anything ever, you know, if you ever need. You, you know, I will. Anything, yeah, you know. you know, I will. This is yeah, this isn't goodbye, but it's until the next time. Onward. Oh, that's right. And upward. Yes, and, and upward. That's right. <laughs> Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Thanks for listening to the Independent Life Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida. If you like what you hear, please rate, review, and subscribe. And if you know anyone who might benefit from listening, share this podcast and invite them to subscribe too. For questions, suggestions, or if you have a story you'd like to share, please email us at cilncf.org at gmail.com or call us at 352-378-7474. Thanks for joining us. Until next time, support, advocate, and empower each other to live the independent life.